are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It's now over 30 years ago that our local Anglican clergy conference welcomed Dr. Robert Weber as our speaker for the three days of talks. But I remember it as if it were yesterday. Weber was at the time a professor at Wheaton College in Illinois, teaching in the area of worship and liturgy. Now, he'd grown up in a very conservative Baptist denomination in the States. He'd gone to Bob Jones University for his first degree. From there, he continued his studies, finishing up a doctorate at a very conservative Missouri Synod Lutheran Seminary. And then he landed at Wheaton, the perhaps the highest profile evangelical college in the United States, the alma mater of Billy Graham, among many others. And Weber taught there for some 30 years. Now, somewhere along the line, Robert Weber's studies in liturgy had drawn him toward the Anglican tradition. And in 1985, he published his book, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail, Why Evangelicals Are Attracted to the Liturgical Church. In this book, he described the reasons behind his own gradual move toward the Anglican tradition. At the time, the book was met with a highly critical response from many of his evangelical peers and it apparently raised some serious concerns within the Wheaton College community. After all, weren't these Anglicans part of the liberal mainline? Was this professor's faith going lukewarm? Yet Weber persevered, and in time his peers at Wheaton became very receptive to his move and its impact on his thought and his teaching. What's interesting is the way in which his faith provided an anchor for many of the young students. As he told the story, time and again a young student would come to his office, quietly close the door, sit down, and begin to talk. And not just talk, but agonize over their doubts and their struggles. Many of these students had grown up in small-town America. They'd attended high school with kids who'd been raised in the church. They'd gone to Sunday school and to youth group in a kind of milieu in which this belief system just all fit with the way their world was shaped. Then they'd headed off to Wheaton, launched into a first-year program of their undergraduate degree, began to be introduced to other ways of seeing things. Whether in an earth sciences course or a history or philosophy class, these new ideas kept surfacing, which bumped hard against the safe little world from which they'd come. 
Yes, Wheaton is the premier evangelical college. Its motto written in English, not in Latin, was, quote, for Christ and his kingdom. The professors were all required to pledge themselves to a broadly evangelical belief framework, but that didn't mean that a science professor wouldn't talk about the age of the earth. A philosophy professor wouldn't critique the thinness of some theological thought. Or a history professor wouldn't outline the sometimes problematic origins of American fundamentalist thought. This was all brand new to these students whose way of being in the world had previously been very safe, very sheltered, and very insular. And so they'd come to Dr. Weber. They tell him they weren't sure that they could believe their childhood Christianity anymore. It just didn't fit with what they were learning in their academic courses. So now, how to believe? And they were worried that they wouldn't be able to at all. And he'd tell them to just come to church with him on Sunday, to keep coming with him week after week after week. When we stand to say the Nicene Creed, and you're not sure you can say it, let me say it for you, he'd tell them. In other words, let the church community hold this belief for you in its liturgy and its prayer and communion. But just keep coming. Don't cut yourself off. As John tells this gospel story, I see Thomas, doubting Thomas, stand very much in line with Robert Weber's wise counsel. The other disciples have had this extraordinary experience of encountering the risen Christ. But Thomas, who was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, they are absolutely delighted to tell him of their experience. But all Thomas can say is, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. See, Thomas can't bear to believe. Earlier in this gospel, he'd already resigned himself to the fact that Jesus would likely be killed in Jerusalem, saying, let us go, that we may die with him. Which shows Thomas as the one disciple in the bunch who has a realistic assessment of what was likely to happen. You know, the others are still dreaming, oh, let me sit at your right hand and your left hand and give us these places. It'll be wonderful when your kingdoms come. And Thomas is just kind of like, they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. Here now, when the rest of them start to talk this resurrection language, Thomas won't buy in. He has to see. He has to have proof. And it's likely that he isn't prepared to even entertain that thought to any real degree. It's likely that on that first Easter Sunday, when the others have had this experience, Thomas has been out perhaps buying some supplies in the marketplace, 
for their long walk back home to Galilee because he's convinced that they just need to go. He's ready to go, leave Jerusalem behind, and leave behind the dream of some Savior. It's over. Yet now the others aren't ready to leave Jerusalem. Not now that they've had this experience, and so they stay put there, waiting. Quote, a week later, Jesus' disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Thomas was still there, fully a week later. He may not be able to drop his doubts and just believe, but he's not about to head home on his own. He needs to keep company with the others, which is, I think, the most remarkable point about this story. When we stand to say the Nicene Creed, Robert would say to those students racked with doubts, and you're not sure you can say it, let me say it for you. The great 20th century theologian Paul Tillich was insistent that doubt was something we needed to walk with as a people of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, he famously wrote. It is one element of faith. And then he continued, If doubt appears, it should not be considered as the negation of faith, but as an element which was always and will always be present in the act of faith. Serious doubt is confirmation of faith. It indicates the seriousness of the concern, its unconditional character. The wrestlings that we do at various points in this walk of faith are not, in fact, negations of our faith, but all a part of it. If there's no room for doubt, there would be no room for me, as Frederick Beekner once put it. If there's no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. But then you might say, well, sure, but didn't Thomas, didn't Mary Magdalene, all of the, the apostles, didn't they have an experience of the risen Christ, something that moved them well beyond that doubt? Sure. But remember these stories. They meet their old teacher, mentor, friend. They recognize him. They see those scars. They share a bit of fish with them. And then again on the beach, they share a meal of fish and bread with him. Yes, he was newly, fully alive in his resurrection life, but he was still very much Jesus, very much their familiar. But of course, there are those from across the centuries who have had thoroughgoing, mystical, religious experiences of the sort that Frederick Buechner isn't sure he could bear. St. Paul, for instance, whose encounter with Christ knocked him blind to the ground and started a whole new journey in his life. Or the medieval mystic Julian of Norwich, whose showings, visions, formed the point at which her faith deepened to an almost unimaginable level. And there are, over the centuries, time and again, those sorts of stories, those sorts of experiences 
But for most of us, most of the time, you and me and Thomas and Frederick Beekner, Mary Magdalene and Paul Tillich, we need space for the struggle, questions, wrestlings, and yes, even doubt. What Thomas lived as he said, I can't believe unless I see and touch. What he lived was not some apostasy, but rather part of the only way he could walk, living in his doubts until he could see his Lord. But do recall and keep it clearly in view, he did not try to walk that path alone. He did not turn around and head back for Galilee. He stayed, probably nervously or with frustration or just tensed, He stayed with those other ten disciples and Mary Magdalene and the rest of that company, not alone. Neither should any of us or can any of us walk this path alone, for this is a shared path together as members of the one body of Christ. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.